Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Pastor Jeffrey Myers titled, Cultivating Life in a Culture of Death, from the series of the same name. Check out the full series now on Canon Plus. On January 22nd, 1973, that's 41 years ago, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down its decision on Roe versus Wade, the landmark case that legalized abortion on demand in the United States. In those 41 years, more than 57 million babies have died before they ever drew a breath. That is approximately 3,000 babies a day for 15,000 days. To put this into some perspective, in all the wars fought in America since 1776, about one and a quarter million people have died. American servicemen have died. One and a quarter million since 1776 versus 57 million in 41 years. In the United States, almost as many people die by abortion than heart disease and cancer combined, the two leading causes of death apart from abortion. About two and a half million people die in the United States each year by, by the next 10 causes of death. Abortion is the cause of almost one third of all deaths in the United States every year. And of course, it isn't just an American problem. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that Israel recently decided that the Israeli government has agreed to pay for all abortions for women between 20 and 30. The government says we'll pay for all of them. And I, I said this then, I want to say it again just because it's so stunning, that what Pharaoh and Herod and Hitler failed to do, Israel is now doing to herself. It's a global problem. There's not a region in the world where abortion is not practiced prevalently. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, the day when churches bring to mind the atrocity of abortion. And it is an atrocity. This is not something that should make us feel okay. As I've mentioned before, if there, was, if there was a disease that killed 3,000 babies a day, we would speak of, speak of it in terms of judgment. It would be epic. We would be doing everything that we could to find a stop, to find a cure for it. 3,000 babies a day, it is nothing less than judgment. But in our time, we really don't think about it that much. We don't think about this issue. Even the church doesn't think much about it. We know it's happening. We know that it exists, but we've got other things to take care of, other, other things that are capturing our attention, and so we don't think much about it. But it isn't really just abortion that's the problem in our country. Homosexuality is a part of the same problem. Evolution is a part of the same problem. Euthanasia. Infanticide, no-fault divorce, all of these 
are basic denials of two very basic biblical things regarding man and his purpose. The first thing is that man is created in the image of God. And when we kill people because they're inconvenient, that is a denial of that person's having been created in the image of God. The second is the command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. In 1995, Pope John Paul II said that we live in a culture of death. This is a, a an expanded quote, and I want you to hear it because it's, it's really insightful and helpful. He said, quote, While the climate of widespread moral uncertainty can in some way be explained by the multiplicity and gravity of today's social problems, and these can sometimes mitigate the subjective responsibility of individuals, it is no less true that we are confronted by an even larger reality, which can be described as a veritable structure of sin. This reality is characterized by the emergence of a culture which denies solidarity and in many cases takes the form of a veritable culture of death. This culture is actively fostered by powerful cultural, economic, and political currents, which encourage an idea of society exclusively concerned with efficiency. Looking at the situation from this point of view, it is possible to speak in a certain sense of a war of the powerful against the weak, a life which would require greater acceptance, love, and care is considered useless or held to be an intolerable burden and is therefore rejected in one way or another. A person who, because of illness, handicap, or more simply just by existing, compromises the well-being or lifestyle of those who are more favored, tends to be looked upon as an enemy to be resisted or eliminated. This conspiracy involves not only individuals in their personal, family, or group relationships, but goes far beyond to the point of damaging and distorting, at the international level, relations between peoples and states, end quote. We see the reality of what John Paul II said in stunning relief in our own time. And there are no clear signs that there is any abatement of this culture of death anytime soon. But of course, this is not, this is not the end of the story. It's only a chapter in the story. It's important for us to understand when we look around the world, this isn't the end. This isn't the end of the story. This is a chapter in a much larger story. I don't want to spend all of our time this morning convincing you of how bad things are. You can read the Sunday paper and learn that for yourself. I'm not going to try to convince you that abortion, homosexuality, and all the rest are sins. The Bible speaks plainly about these things, and we believe the Bible. And so I'm not going to try to convince you of what you already know. What I want to do this morning is point to the way through all of this. In spite of the way we started this message, this, I hope, will be for you a very upbeat and uplifting sermon. I hope to be an encouragement to you this morning. We do live in a culture of death. This is true. But we do not live exclusively in a culture of death. We, the church, have a different operating system. We live and move with a different set of presuppositions than the world does. We have a different paradigm. Let let me remind us quickly of what we believe, what we confess, what we say 
as a people. We believe that God is sovereign over all creation. I believe that Paul uh, very helpfully pointed this out last week. God is sovereign over all creation. He is sovereign over every molecule, over every breath. There is not one square inch to steal from Kuiper. There is not one square inch in all of human existence that Christ has not touched and said, mine. We believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and that he is exercising his authority for the renewal of all things. It's what he said and we believe him. We believe that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, new creation has begun. Christ took on death. He defeated it and brought out of it life. And he is now working by his spirit to make all things new. We believe this. This is what the Bible tells us. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of life, and it is infinitely more powerful than the message of death, no matter how things appear. With this as our operating paradigm, we are able to see the world rightly. And this means that even though darkness and death seem to be having their way, we know that light has come into the world and darkness has not overcome it. Light has come into the world and darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came into the world as the light of the world. This is the testimony of John 1. And Jesus himself said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John 9, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Did you notice the two contingencies there in those two verses from John 8 and John 9? He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What happens after Jesus dies? What after? What happens after he is resurrected and ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father? Does he cease to be light? Not exactly. Rather, what happens is that his light is now in us. We are the light. We are the light. And and I'm not just making that up. That's what Jesus said about us. He said, you are the light of the world. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light into the whole, into the whole house. In the same way, you let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In, Paul, in Ephesians 5, Paul makes the statement, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see, our role, our mission in the world is to reveal. That's what light does. It reveals things. It makes things plain. And our mission is to reveal the way of truth and life. That's what we are about. That's what we, the church, do. We, the church, are the new humanity, new creation in Christ Jesus. And as such, we have the mission of living and speaking and loving, and so on, in such a way as to glorify, which means to reveal, to make known Jesus Christ. 
That's our mission. That's why we exist. That's why we are here. We are never to concede the future to darkness. We are to claim the future for Christ. We are never to throw our hands up in despair and defeat because in Christ we are more than conquerors. We are never, no matter how pervasive death seems, to give in to it. We are always and in every way to live as though Christ is king and is working to renew all things. And we do that because that is reality. That is real reality. That is true truth. That is the way that things really are. And we are people of truth. We are people who believe in a reality that is beyond the reality that uh, that people of the world ascribe to. We don't retreat. We don't capitulate. We don't quit. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that we do not grieve. This does not mean that we do not lament. It doesn't mean that we don't mourn the death that is all around us. We do and we must. Jesus did that. What it means is that we are called to be salt and light in the world. And no matter how unsavory the world is or how dark it is, it is us who are here for the good of the world. That's who we are, Christ Church. That's who we are. So what does it look like for us? How do we do this? What do we, what do we do? Well, I'm going to use an old, for us, um, grid through which to understand this. And I, and I, and I hope it's helpful to, to keep bringing this up to you. It's a, it's a helpful reminder. The first thing is, what do we do? We do what we're doing right now. We worship. We worship. We need to be reminded of what's going on here every Sunday. What are we doing here every Sunday? We need to be reminded. We are, among other things, we are declaring our allegiance to Christ. When we show up here and worship every Sunday, we are saying, He is our King, He is my King, and I am coming to declare my allegiance to Him over against all of the other things that vie for our affections. Jesus Christ is King, He is my king, and I am loyal to him. Every week, we get reset, right? It's like, okay, this is who you are. You're reminded, this is who you are. This is who God is. And now, live that way. We are refocused, and we are reminded of what's important and what's true and what's right. Further, we are publicly raising the banner of Christ. We are raising the banner of the king. We are eating at his table in the midst of our enemies, and we are commissioned by him to go into the world after we leave this place and get Jesus all over everything. And that happens here. That's what we're doing here this morning. This thing that we do each week is not just religious obligation. We're not just ticking boxes, although it is religious obligation for sure. It's not simply that. We are doing right now, and it may not feel like it because you're comfortable and the air temperature is okay for most of us, but we are right now doing battle. Like right right this minute at 1120-something a.m. on Sunday morning, January 19th, we are doing battle. 
right? Right now, you are doing battle. But who are you doing battle against? You are doing battle against rulers and authorities and against the cosmic power over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. That's what we're doing. We are engaging in warfare right now. And if you think going to church on Sunday morning is optional, you just don't understand the nature of what's going on here. We don't, as I've said before, we don't make the decision every Sunday morning whether we're going to go to church or not. We make that decision one time in our lives. That's when we make that decision. Once I go here on Sunday morning. And unless I'm providentially hindered, which means I've got an arm off or something, I'm going to be in church. Further, what God does in us and for us each week is to sow life into us. He sows life. He he needs life into us. He is, he is working out sin and He's working into us the leaven of the gospel. We're not conformed to the image of His Son by pixie dust. Right? We're being conformed. We read the verse. We're being conformed to the image of His Son. Well, how does that happen? It doesn't happen by sitting in your car and hearing a, hearing a tune that gets you emotionally worked up. You're conformed to the image of His Son by being cultivated. And when you come to church, you're being cultivated. You're being discipled. The bad is being pressed out and, and the good is being worked into. you. Which means we're being pruned and fertilized and weeded and made more fruitful. And this is done primarily as we join with the people of God in the weekly worship service. We come together as his people, as the community of God. And that, that's the second thing. We have worship and then we have community. A right, understand of, right understanding of community is vital if we are going to understand life itself. If you don't understand your connectedness to other people, if you don't understand your connectedness to the body of Christ, then you don't understand what your life is all about. Your life is contingent upon community. We are not created to do life alone. We're not created to go from this person to this person to this person like flowers. We're, we're, we're created to be a part of a people. We're created to, to be a part of the body, which is the body of Christ. When God said that it was not good for the man to be alone, he was making a declaration about the man's nature. He was saying, as Bodhi Bakum says, that boy ain't going to make it. He's not okay by himself. God is saying, it's not enough that he just has me. He needs somebody like him. It is not good that he be alone. He needs somebody like him to be joined to. And the two became one flesh, and we know that. He was made in the image of God who exists in, in Trinity, in community. God exists in community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And man was made like him, and so he must have community. And we need community every bit as much as Adam did. This is where we live. The church is the community of renewed humanity, and to be connected to this community is to be connected to life. When you are connected to the church, you are connected to renewed humanity, which is true life. We are the body of Christ, and unless you're connected to the body, you don't have life. That's a strong statement. But unless you're connected to the body, unless you're connected to the body of Christ, you do not have life. Here's an experiment. Let's just make it a thought experiment so that you don't actually try it. Cut off your little toe and see how long it lives. That's what you are. 
you are the little toe. And if you're cut off, you don't make it. You need to be connected to the body. Now, as we are a part of a community, we have a lot of opportunities to give life. As we are connected to the body, as we are a part of this, we have a lot of opportunities to do life-giving things with our words, with our acts of service, with our speaking truth to one another in love. We have a lot of opportunities to give life to one another. It also means that we have a lot of opportunities to not give life. Listen to the way that you speak to your children. Listen to the way that you speak to your brother or your sister. Listen to the way that you speak to your spouse. Every interaction is an opportunity to speak life or to speak death. There's no in-between. Every interaction with somebody else is an opportunity to be life-giving or life-taking. If your words are helpful and full of blessing and kindness, you're speaking life. If your words are hostile and self-serving and condemning and condescending, you're speaking death. Are you seeking to serve one another or are you seeking to be served? This is our paradigm. But of course, being a part of any community is hard. It's not easy because people sin. You sin. It's not hard. It's not easy to be in community with you because you're a sinner. But when people sin against us, that's an opportunity to give life as we forgive one another. Community is important in the discussion of abortion and all the rest because what people need is to be connected, attached to the community of life. What people need is the church. What people need is Christ. And so the way that we interact with the world is we bring them into the community. We don't go to the legislature primarily. We don't go to, we don't go to the courthouse. We interact with, with this issue by bringing people into the community. I'm going to talk about that more in just a minute. We need to be the kind of community that people see as representative of life. We need to know how to, to speak life and to breathe life into each other's lives. We need to show what it is to be alive. We need to show what it is to be new creation. And there are all kinds of ways that we can manifest this. Simple acts of service to one another. Simple little things are life-giving. When someone does a small kindness for you, or when you do a small kindness for someone, that's life-giving. When, don't, you, don't you just feel good when someone does something kind for you? It's not about our feelings, but it's, it's an expression. Life feels good. And so when someone does a small thing for you, it's a, it's a good thing. We can manifest life by always being an encouragement to one another. When I say encouragement, I'm not talking about just correcting somebody. I'm talking about genuine encouragement. You are really good at that thing. You should do that thing more. Who doesn't want to hear that kind of thing? Isn't that life-giving when someone affirms who you are and what you're doing? You say, you're, you're good at that or you, that you're really coming along in this way. Those are encouragements and they're life-giving. And it may sound silly. Well, that just sounds psychological. It's true. When my wife encourages me with something, 
I, I walk a little taller. I feel a little bit better about myself. She has spoken life to me. And I know the same is true with her. When I say kindnesses to her, when I do the same thing for my children, I can tell when my children have, been, have received a bit of life from me and when they have received something else. Smile at one another. Smile. Listen to one another. Listen. I need to hear what's going on in your life. I need to know what your story is. I need to hear what's going on in your world so that I can pray for you correctly. And I, and I, I hope that y'all are praying for each other. I hope you pray for me. I'm praying for you. And I know how because I hear what's going on in your lives. I, I hear a little bit of your story. Be open to correction. Receive one another's correction. When someone comes to you and they do want to offer you the kind of encouragement that is, look, I want to, you got this thing going on and I want to be open to that. That encourages the one who is offering the correction and it's for your good. Be willing to correct one another. Bear one another's burdens. Do you know that there is not a person in this church from this side of the room to this side of the room, from the front to the back, there is not one person in this church who does not have burdens. From the oldest to the youngest, we all have burdens. Every one of us has got something that we're walking around with that's heavy and it's hard for us. But each one of us also has the ability and the gifting to bear one another's burdens, to come alongside each other. How can I help you? What can I do for you? But all this presupposes that we're actually interested in each other's lives. The third thing is mission. What our mission is, is to bring people into this community. To bring people into this life-giving, breathing body of Christ. That's what we're about. That's who we are supposed to be. That's, That's our mission. That's our job in life. We are, as our Old Testament lesson this morning and our New Testament lesson both affirm, we are a kingdom of priests. And you know what a priest's job is? Let me tell you what a priest's job is not. This this last week I was at a conference and this was the most helpful talk I think that I heard. It was by Jeff Myers. He talked a lot about priesthood. And he said several things, obviously, in an hour. But the, the primary points, points were that what, what a priest is not is a mediator between a per, between a person or people and God. A priest's job is not to mediate that relationship. And so when we think of the Levitical priesthood, the, Levi- the Levites, the priests, their job was not to be a, a, a mediator, but a helper. Their job was to help people come to God. They would help them prepare the sacrifice. They would make them, they, they would help them get ready to come near to God. They would help them come into the presence of God. Their job was to be a helper. Not a mediator. When we think of the Roman Catholic Church, often when we think of priests, we think of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic priests are not mediators, even if they think they are. Priests are not mediators. Priests are helpers. And we are a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom of helpers. Now, when most people hear of the doctrine of priesthood of all believers, what they, what they may say is, well, I'm a, I'm a priest, so I don't need a priest. Well, that is just a ridiculous idea. If we're all priests, who are we priests for? Is it just for ourselves? No, we're priests to help each other. We're priests to help each other get to God. That's what that means. So Israel was a a nation of priests, a priestly nation. Their job was to help the whole world come to Yahweh. 
Our job as priests is to help people come to God. I am a priest in this church in the sense, in the sense that my job is to help you every week come to God. I'm to help you to, to teach you something or to, to say words to you or to lead you in singing or in prayer or whatever to help you come to God. And you are priests to me. And you are priests to each other. When somebody comes in and they have their, let's say they're a visitor and they're looking at this crazy thing that we do every Sunday morning. Oh my goodness, this is just so much. And you go to them and you say, let me explain what this is, what this, what this is all about. And you go through the order of worship with them and you tell them, this is what we're doing. You're, you're doing priest stuff with them. You're helping them come into the presence of God. When you pray for others but before you come, you're doing a priestly function. That's what a priest is. And we are a kingdom of priests. And so when we talk about doing missions, often we think about going to Africa or going to you know some place where they haven't heard the gospel. And all of that is true. We must do those things. But we go there as priests to help people come to God. And we are a kingdom of priests. And we perform our functions not in these big, grandiose ways, but in small ways. Preachers want to do this thing that I've noticed that I've I've tried to do once or twice. And we want to say things that are so big and so grandiose that we change the world with one sermon. Right? We want to give the sermon to end all sermons. We want to say everything that there is to say. And boy, now we've just fixed everything. If you'll just do what I told you, then life will be great. But that's not how it works. You're not changed, typically, by one sermon. One sermon doesn't last you forever, the same as one meal doesn't last forever. It's a thousand sermons over weeks and years listening to to sermons. That's how it is with our priestly function. We serve each other, not with one big act of service. Boy, I fixed you. No, it's a thousand, it's a million acts of service that we perform for one another. Leading each other, helping each other get to God. So, to get back to where we started from, how does all of this stop abortion? How does this change the culture of death? Well, in our text this morning, (laughs) some of you might have been wondering if I was ever going to get back to it. That was all introduction. Now we're going to execute Thus says the Lord God, Yahweh of hosts, to the house of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not uh, not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in the well, in its welfare, in the welfare of the city, you will find your welfare. We exist, as Christ did, for the life of the world. As Christ does. We exist for the life of the world. We are here to serve the world. And we serve the world by worshiping God. We serve the world as we live in community with one another. And we serve the world as we tell them, as we show them, as we do these priestly things, to bring them into the community, into the people of God, so that they may come and worship with us. We don't change the world by condemning it. If we just stand on the street corner and wag our fingers, we're not changing the world. Now, there are things in the world that need to be condemned. 
The imprecatory psalms exist for a reason. There are, there are, we must condemn abortion. We must condemn pornography. There are so many things in the world that must be condemned. There's nothing redeeming about them. But just to wholesale condemn the world and wag our finger at it and say, no, 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 wrong, 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 that doesn't fix the world. Because there's a lot in the world that doesn't need to be condemned. God's, God created it and said, it is good. There's a lot of good stuff in the world. And so what we need to do is we need to discover the good stuff and agree with God that it is good. And so if all we're doing is condemning things, we're not helping. Condemn what needs to be condemned. Condemn what, where there is no redemption. But don't just take a posture of, well, the world's just bad, so I'm going to retreat into my little holy huddle in my bunker, and us four who really know the truth, we're going to just stay off to the side and just wait for rapture or whatever. We don't change the world by critiquing the world, by just sitting back and evaluating and saying, well, that's very good and that's very bad. And, you know, just, just kind of, you know, we're setting ourselves above it and say, we're just the judges and we'll say what's good. and what that, that doesn't help the world. And copying the world, copying culture, is no way to change it. You know, uh, Doug Wilson at the conference last week said that, uh, give me five years and I'll do the same thing the world's doing, only worse. <laughs> Contemporary Christian music, anybody? So just by copying the culture, we're not going to, we're certainly not going to change. And just being consumers of the culture are not going to change the world. That's not how we change the world. We change the world. This is how we do it by creating better culture. We change the world by being the people of God rather than critiquing the world or condemning the world or copying it or consuming it. We cultivate the right way of being in the midst of this darkness. Each small life-giving act in the world changes the world. And the more we do it, the better we get at it. The more consistent we are at it. And the more we are light in the world. We know that Christ has overcome death in his resurrection. We know that to be true. And so now we overcome death in the world by the power of his resurrection. The battle is not won in the courtroom. It's won in the sanctuary. The battle is not won in the town square, but around the dinner table. The battle is not won in our wars of words. The battle is won in our helping each other approach God. That's how we change the world. Now, I'm not saying that we don't do legislative things at the beginning of the service. I asked you to sign a petition. So I think we ought to do these things. And wherever we have the, the opportunity, we ought to do those things. But that's not how the battle is won. The battle is won through Christ who has already won. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full series, Cultivating Life in a Culture of Death, now available on Canon+. Plus.